everyone and welcome back to the Redbeard Outdoors podcast. I'm Jonathan, your host, and here at Redbeard Outdoors, I talk about faith, family, fitness, and the outdoors. I'm on a journey myself to become a better version of me every single day, whether that be when I'm wearing my hat as a dad, whether I'm wearing my hat as an employee, whether I'm wearing my hat as a business owner, whatever it may be, hunting, outdoors, working out, whatever. I'm on my journey to be a better version of me, guys, and I'm sharing that with you. So I appreciate you joining along. I hope you're on your own journey as well as you continue to become the better version of yourself, whether that be husband, father, dad, mom, hunter, archer, whatever it is. I want you to become a better version of yourself every single day. And that's why I continue putting out these amazing conversations on Saturday like today. And today we have a very special guest. His name is Nick Fisher. He is the owner, president, CEO, all the way down to janitor, wears multiple different hats. Amazing dude. Nick Fisher is a wealth of knowledge when it comes to archery, but also many other aspects of whether it be business, fitness, etc. He's going on his own journey, and I love the conversation that we were able to have today that I get to share with you. So definitely want to tune in for that. Uh, but then on Tuesdays, guys, we do the Tinkering Tuesday podcast where I get to share with you, uh, whether it be gear reviews or mindset stories, things along those lines, things that I'm tinkering with in my own life and want to share that with you. That's where they're at on Tuesday. So again, I appreciate you guys. This show has continued to grow week over week. I appreciate it. Thanks for sharing. Make sure you leave a review, guys, if you want to support the show. The best way is to follow or subscribe, whether that be on YouTube or the podcast or both. I'd appreciate both. And then leave a review on whatever platform it is that you listen to the podcast. Apple Podcasts and Spotify seem to be the most popular. So I appreciate that, guys. Again, the growth continues to happen and it wouldn't happen without you. So I really appreciate it. Now, today, I want to highlight Nick and AAE Arizona Archery Equipment. Uh, They are a brand that is obviously based out of Arizona. Nick has been in the archery industry since a very young age. We even talk about steel cables on bows and even before that. So you guys definitely want to tune in. And even if you aren't into archery, Nick is on a journey to become, again, that better version of himself. He's lost a ton of weight has gained a bunch of energy back, has gained some muscle, and he is just enjoying life as much as he can right now and is sharing that with us in this conversation. So really appreciate having Nick on. And guys, we are in the midst of hunting season when this comes out. We're in the middle of September. For a lot of us Western guys and Eastern guys that come out for elk, this is prime time. I am no expert And I am not the most experienced. I don't want you guys to ever feel that way about me. I hope I don't come off that way. I'm still learning. I've had an amazing season up to this point. It's been fun. Have yet to notch the tag, but I feel that it's coming. So I'm excited to share that with you guys as well. If you need any gear at all, definitely go check out Black Ovis. I'll leave the link down below. The code is REDBEARD10. You get free shipping on anything over $50 and 10% off everything from your optics to gear to clothing to backpacks, etc. Definitely check it out. With that being said, guys, let's get into this conversation with Nick Fisher. 
everybody, and welcome back to the Red Beard Outdoors podcast. I've got an amazing guest here for you guys. Uh, we've got Nick Fisher. He is the owner and president of AAE Archery, and they do so much more than archery, but we're going to focus on archery here today. Um, and if you guys don't know who Nick is, he is an outstanding archer to begin with. Uh, even though he works in the industry, he still loves it, which is awesome. Speaks a lot about his passion uh, in, in archery. He tunes the crap out of bows. Uh, he knows what he's doing, guys. That's basically, I mean, that sums it all up. But Nick, for people that don't know who you are, who are you in a nutshell? Well, um, yeah, you, you pretty much explained it there as to who I am now, but born and raised in the industry. I'm third generation owner. Um, AAE is in its 53rd year of business now. So uh, my grandparents started it in 1971 uh, as a, he was originally Plasti Fletch, started in 1958 by Jewel and Max Hamilton. Um, and that was the original production level plastic vein. And then, yeah, my, my grandparents bought it in 19, or 1971 with their business partners. And then uh, they became sole owners in the mid 70s. And then, uh, yeah, from there, it just expanded, you know, constantly looking to grow and move into different things. Uh, you see a lot of molded parts behind us. We mold, do injection molding these days. Injection molding for us started for just to make knocks um, in the late 70s and early 80s and then found out that that can really expand into other industries. And we try to be very diverse. Our diversity in the molding world um, supplements our love for archery. So, um, yeah. You know, I started here in the business when I was 10 years old. And so in my 31st year in the business, and that's what we do. We like to make stuff and we love archery. No, that's awesome. And it, it's rare to find someone who is either born into it or starts in a young age and is so in-depth into the archery industry or any industry in general, and you're still doing it after 30 plus years and you're still loving it and you're excelling at it. You haven't really plateaued in a way you're still finding ways to innovate and get better and that that speaks a lot again to your passion for for archery and then on top of that uh, I think you know a lot like other people like myself you're finding ways to supplement your love for archery and getting out and hunting by you know taking care of other things like you were saying with the injection molding which is pretty awesome we're going to talk definitely about some of the things that you guys make uh, along with the knocks I kind of want you to break that down as well but um how did, I guess, how did your, your dad, or I guess your great, was it your great grandfather that My started grand your yeah. grandfather? How did he get into archery? What was his kind of beginnings? Well, he grew up in Ohio, um, you know, hunting whitetail and, and he was really big into bow fishing when he was young, um, hop around the river bottoms, bow fishing when he was little. So he just, you know, he had the same itch. We all get the same passion for it when he was very young. So um, when they moved here to Arizona, he just kept shooting a bow. And, you know, that's back then, particularly, it was such a small world. I mean, you know, he was, because he was naturally a good archer, um, he, of course, his circle moved into the people in the upper echelon of the world, archery world, which the business owners were all archers back then, you know. I mean, Jim Easton and Jerry Carter and my grandpa and, um, Tom Jennings. I mean, that they were just a close knit group of guys. Charlie Sandlin, my grandpa's business partner, he's two time national champion. Back in the seventies, they all just that was archery, man. So uh, that's really just how it got started. And as uh, even to the, to this day, how a lot of businesses get started, you have a passion for doing it. And it 
goes from being a hobby to, well, maybe I can make a, a living out of this. And yeah, that's, that's where it went. No, that's awesome. And yeah, I definitely like that. And it's, it's a big move from Ohio to Arizona. So mm-hmm. your grandpa made that move, right? Yeah. My grandma and my grandpa did. Gotcha. Yep. And then have you been in Arizona your whole life? Yeah. I'm born and raised right here in Prescott. Right. And you haven't melted yet. Okay. <laughs> well, you know, don't tell anybody, but this ain't Phoenix. We're 5,000 feet of elevation. Um, we have yeah. full four seasons. We see zero. We see a hundred. We get it all. So that's awesome. Yeah. So Prescott's the, the, uh, unspoken gym of Arizona, right? So I've, I've been to, it's, it's, I've, it's one of them. It's certain. Yeah. 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 No, that's for sure. Yeah. Anytime you think of Arizona, you think desert, you think of melting trash cans, uh, you know, things like that. You can cook on the street. Uh, and, and that's, that's awesome. Yeah. I've been to a couple of places where, um, it's like, wow, this is Arizona. Like that doesn't make sense. It doesn't compute to me. I just think desert, you know, uh, but that, that's awesome. So then you got into archery and did you go straight into, um, did you go target? Did you go hunting? Did you do both? How did you get into it? Yep. Pretty much both. You know, I started shooting when I was three, um, got into just target archery alone. And, you know, I think by five or six years old, I was attending a few local state events with my grandparents and then my dad would come along some. Um, but yeah, I, really just target archery till I was old enough to, you know, to shoot a legal poundage nine, 10 years old. And, um, you know, fell in love with hunting was never successful, which turned me, you know, I like to take my bow for hikes and, um, I actually didn't kill my first big game animal till I was 25, like 15 years, an incredible amount of stories of failure and a lot of big learning curves. And, uh, but I became an outdoorsman and that's, very much I think what pushes me now to still love archery as much is I love the outdoors you know I just you know people have heard me say it before but church to me is sitting on a ridge top watching the sunrise watching mother nature wake up I mean that's church man that's my that's my connection to God um so yeah why not do it and be able to take your bow with you and, and provide you know provide organic meat to the family and just enjoy the whole experience. Exactly. Yeah. And I, I definitely agree that that's, again, speaks to your dedication and passion for it, that you were, you went 15 years without killing anything and uh, you've got lots of stories, but you, you turned that into uh, more of a drive even to get out there. And, and that, that's a big deal as well. So did you, you know, growing up in target and, and bow hunting, um, when did you start tuning your own bows when did you start messing around with with your own stuff without your parents um my grandpa taught me early on how to tune but that was old school thought processing i mean before the days of fall away rests you know we were old t300 golden key style rest with a, a plunger and uh, offset blades and that was just really old school thought processes steel cables back in the day my grandpa's actually the one who invented our cable system that we use today um, I was standing next to him the day he decided to come up with that design because we had a steel cable on a 100-pound bow come apart and amazingly not hurt either one of us. The lead sink wow. went through almost completely through his garage door header. He was shooting 100 yards out of his garage, and his Alaska bow came apart. So, um, yeah, I mean, I've been I'm taught from the beginning how to take care of my own bows. I've never used a bow shop. Um 
you know, but really just evolving into as the bows have evolved and technology has changed and then really learning how to tune as followways have become more popular, you know, particularly in the hunting world. And they've really become more popular in the target world now. Blade dressers still dominant, but um, there's so much value in a high end hunting followway even in the target world now. So I think one of the biggest things that drove me is yes, I'm, I'm a good archer. I pro- certainly I would classify myself as top five percent, but I'm not that upper echelon. And hanging out in the last ten, twelve years with the upper echelon of target archers in the world that I've been blessed to do, and learning from them how to tune, um, and how that creates forgiveness. Because I'm not very steady. I have uh, genetically, I have very fast. Uh, fast twitch muscles they don't really slow down so learning how to tune a bow to be forgiving and um a setup to be forgiving on a high-end level had became my passion to make to allow me to score better um on the target world it never really affected me in the hunting world um you know but there's a difference when you're trying to shoot a quarter versus a paper plate you know so that's that's really what's drove me and again Getting to hang out and spend time with the upper echelon of archers, Jesse Broadwater, um, you know, a name somebody would know a lot. Again, Greg Poole, who worked for us for years, he was a phenomenal bow tuner. Between him and Jesse, I was just blessed to absorb and listen and find out that, you know, it's almost black magic stuff that the target world does that I'm actually working to bring to the hunting world now because bow hunters need to understand it. There's so much value in it for a bow hunter because. We only get one shot, and we're never in a good spot. Your heart's going nuts. You're already dealing with target pa- or you know buck fever. Add in some target panic and everything else. It's the hardest singular shot you'll ever take as as a bow hunter. You know, I mean, the only thing it'll ever compare with as an archer is maybe that last arrow to shoot your first three hundred or a nine hundred in Vegas, or you know, in the shoot off at an ASA. And I still don't think that comes even close to having to make a shot on an animal of a lifetime or your first animal for that matter. I mean, when I finally harvested my first animal, it was 101 yards on a mule deer and I barely remember the shot. <laughs> yep. I almost blacked out, you know, and from there that's just practice coming through in your body doing what you've taught it. So, but no, yeah, for sure. It's, it's definitely hard to stay in that moment in my limited experience. I've only got a couple years under my belt uh, but I can definitely, it doesn't matter if it's a spike or you know, a six by six bull or a seven by seven, like it doesn't matter. It's a living yeah. animal and there's something, there's so much that goes into it. And you mentioned target panic buck fever, but also the fatigue of hiking and you know, you're dehydrated possibly you've got that. And then on top of that, you get cotton mouth when you see that animal step out. And then, you know, <laughs> there's so many things that happen, uh, in that shot. It, it's pretty crazy. So, um, no, that, that, that's outstanding. I do want to kind of re- rewind a little bit. I want to hear about this. So steel cables, I didn't even realize that was a thing that seems dangerous. Uh, <laughs> but you know, just knowing what that can do to your body if it goes through you. But, um, tell me about this hundred yard shot where the bow broke and you were standing right there. What, what was that all about? Um, yeah, no, my grandpa was just sighting in for, um, for a caribou hunt, you know, and, um, any Western hunting, as you're aware of, especially you get up into the tundra up there, um, you need to be able to shoot far. That's just the name of the game. I mean, 
you can be a really good hunter, but whether it's out in the plains hunting antelope or even the mule deer out in the flats out here, you're only going to get so close sometimes. And there's a lot, 90% of the people in the world, if not more, should not be shooting more than 60 yards. But again, you know, my grandpa was a better archer than, than I am. And, you know, as long as you put the time in, you understand what the weather is and everything, shooting a hundred yards becomes a normal thing for you. Um, you know, as long as the atmosphere permits it and you can keep yourself under control. So, yeah, I mean, I was just standing next to him. He was shooting in his garage, getting ready for a hunt. And so back in the eighties and early nineties, um, well, and since the dawn of time on compound bows, all your, your cables, not the strings, just the cables were steel and they had lead sinks on the end of them. And then there was just a pocket that that would get pressed, pushed into in the camp. Um, I don't, oh, no, that one, I have one bow around here at the shop that has steel cables in it, but it's down at my other facility in the marketing room. Um, but yeah, that instead of, uh, you know, our standard, you know, cable system that we use now that uses braided material or, you know, BCY or, you know, 26, 28 strand cables or whatever we're doing with servings and stuff on it. It was a vinyl coated stainless steel cord, you know, mm. and you might, you might think of it more as like a, a brake cable on a bicycle, but obviously smaller in diameter. Um, and that, that's how it started, you know, forever. But that was, yeah, that, that hundred pound bow, you know, you figure today's technology, a 70 pound bow has 350 to 400 pounds of load on the cables at full draw. So that hundred pound bow and older style limbs, who knows how much load was on that thing, five, 600 mm. pounds. So yeah. putting a lot of load on that little lead sink to hang on to the end of that steel cable. So yeah, it just pulled mm. apart. Like I said, the lead sink went through almost completely through the header above us, you know, blessing it could, could could have gone through either one of us without a thought. Yeah. And amazingly, no, it, it, he didn't even get string whip or anything. It was, what? It was <laughs> yeah. Not, we didn't get a mark on us. Wow. It was pretty crazy. And just busted at full draw. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He was standing hmm. there aiming and it just came apart. He'd even shot the arrow. The arrow hit the target. <laughs> it was wild. <laughs> I don't know how. <laughs> well, that's awesome. That is, and that that's really, that's crazy to think how far you know, stuff has come just even in, you know, 20 years or 30 oh, years, whatever it's been, man. And that's, that, that's not a lot of time. And, and to think the technology has changed so much, even when you look at bows, you know, 10 years ago, five years ago, and to the bows now, it's insane how things keep growing. The jump from 2010 to now is that's where you really look back at it and go, my goodness, you know, um, the technological advances are just crazy now. And I, you know, I think Matt McPherson put it best. And one of the videos he did and interviews he did five or six years ago, you know, where we've gotten down to, you know, you're, you got this sheet of paper and you're technologically making jumps. So we cut it in half once and we cut it in half once and we cut it in half once. Well, now this sheet of paper is down to there's only 2% of it left. And we're trying to make improvements that are a 1% or half a percent improvement now, you know, so. I think that's where a lot of it you see now speed we're probably about maxed out on speeds um limb technology i don't know how much more you could get out of it you know the wider limbs these uh seven eighths and one inch wide limbs um they hold more energy but you know i don't think the rest of the components 
the one thing we know is once you start hitting a certain speed, it's hard to tune. You aim fast, miss fast, you know? Um, so we're seeing more cams that are nicer to draw. You know, uh, the, I, obviously being a, a PSE man myself, as much as you are, you know, the speed and performance are getting out of a PSE these days with a just such a soft cam. I mean, it's funny after shooting the, the original Evolve cam, the EC cam that's been out for six, seven years, um, and the performance it put out was remarkable. And now with the E2 and the S2 that they just brought out in the last couple of years, and uh, the performance is definitely there. They're 10, 15 per second faster. But listening to people go, oh, that cam's not nice to shoot. And I'm going, you've never shot a mean cam. You have no <laughs> idea. <laughs> I, I mean, even from, from the target world, the the spirals and the cam and a half spiral that everybody shot from Hoyts was the most winningest cam forever. That thing was brutal, you know. And the original Omen cam or the full throttle, some of these cams were just, they were violent. Now, oh, that cam's not nice. I just got 10% more draw force curve. What are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then, you know, I shoot the EC2 cam. Um, and, and that thing is just butter. I mean, I I've had people draw back my, so my omens pulling right at about 80 pounds and then my mock 34 is pulling at 83 or 84 pounds. And I've had people pull that back. I had, um, one of the guys over at ultra view, uh, pull it back and he's never pulled anything more than a 70 pound bow. And he goes to draw it back and he's like, sure, this is 83 pounds. And I was like, yeah, we can go put it on the drawboard right now if you want. Like, and uh, and so it, it it really is nice. I haven't done anything with the E two or S two. I think with my draw length, the S two would probably be better. But I know that one is their more aggressive cam uh, in a sense because it's smaller. So, yeah. but either way, the EC two gets great performance. I mean, I'm shooting out of my Omen with a 454 grain arrow, 28 inch draw. I'm getting 310 feet per second. Yeah. It's ridiculous. That's yeah. <laughs> a butter smooth cam. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which is why. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I, because the cams are so good and I don't mind a little more advanced cams, but I'm blessed with everything about me except for my belly button to my armpits is six foot three. So I've got a 30 and a quarter <laughs> inch. Yeah. Somehow God compressed all my ribs, but <laughs> the shortest torso <laughs> in the world. I have a 30 and a quarter inch draw. So on my, yeah. my own is a 71 pounds, but I shoot a 500 grain arrow at 297. Yeah. And so it's an absolute tank. Yeah. That's I'm insane. Only, yeah. I've only found two animals to stop an arrow on it yet. And one's a 24 <laughs> pound water Buffalo and it went three quarters of an inch into the offside leg bone. And wow. It fell down right there, stood there for six seconds and flipped over. And then a, a pig, a 240 pound, big hog and i broke its offside leg and that's a big pig yeah golly that'll actually that that'll be coming out on a show with pigmen here probably this late this winter yeah but that was back in march so wow that's awesome yeah we're, we're definitely gonna have to talk about some of your hunts that you've gone on because i'm sure you've been on some great adventures that i i'm jealous of uh you know just getting into it. i've been i've been shooting a bow for four or five years now um, so I'll, I'll get there eventually, but right now I'm still like elk and mule deer, you know, those are my the bread and butter. That's my love, man. Yeah. Uh, honestly, mm -hmm. I haven't done a ton of adventure hunts. I've spent a lot of time working, you know, and designing stuff and being in Arizona, we have 10 big game animal species to, and we have four over the counter and then raising kids and 
running a business, you know, I, I, I haven't done a ton of adventure hunts. This will be, this year has for the last six months, well, eight months and coming into some of the trips I have planned this year's big year for me to actually be getting out of the state. But, no, that's, that's awesome. And yeah, you know, there, there are some of those sacrifices that you you had to make, you know, whether it be being a, being a dad one, as long as you're, you know, if you're a good dad, you're a present dad. Um, yeah. it's, it, that's a big key to that. But yeah, you know, I heard something the other day, it was like, parenting is only difficult for good parents. And you know, that it's, it's true because if you're not a good parent, everyone can qualify that however they want. But if you're not a present parent, parenting's really not that hard. You just tell your kids to go wherever and do whatever the frick they want. But if you're a good parent, you know what you you know what your kids are up to, you're involved in their life. And a lot of your stuff has to get pushed to the wayside until they're old enough to get into it. And then you can slowly immerse them into that if it's what they want, you know, and again, if it's what they want, you can't just force it on them, which I hear that a lot too, you know, if we got to force the kids into hunting so that the hunting population stays up. And I'm like, that's not, it's not the right mentality. Um, but between parenting and then, you know, running a business, uh, and you guys do so much more than archery all of this stuff going on, I can understand why, you know, traveling isn't necessarily on the top of the priority list, uh, at the time. But so let, let's talk about that a little bit, I guess. So you, what was your first game animal that you, uh, you knocked down with a bow? Uh, just a little fork and horn mule deer in 2012. So I was 29. Wow. wow. Yeah. So 19 years of hunt. Well, I guess. Years of failure. Yeah. <laughs> wow. <laughs> That's, crazy. Man. That's crazy. Yeah. It was 2000 with a bow. I had taken a few animals with a rifle prior. So mm-hmm. actually, oh, no, 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 no. Wait a second. I'm entirely wrong. That's horrible of me, John. 2000 and November 2007, I shot a spike elk. It was my first hunt on a late season successful hunt. Um, no, that's I awesome. think it was more because of my failures on mule deer because prior to that first elk hunt, I'd never hunted anything but mule deer. And Halloween. <laughs> so maybe that was more of the, that was my nemesis was I've over 15 on mule deer. Mm. Yep. Yep. But so yes, that's, and that's, was an elk, so walk me through, I guess, Arizona has, you said 10 big game animals that you can go after and four over the counter. So is that javelina, mule deer, elk? What else do you have? So the over the counters are mule deer, turkey, bear, mountain lion. Um, okay. and then, so then you have elk, um, again, we still have draw tags for deer. Um, so, uh, and we have two species of deer. So you have mule deer and coos deer, and mm, then we right. have, um, buffalo, two species of sheep and javelina. Gotcha. So, so I, no, have you ever gone on a coos hunt? Oh yeah. Yeah. That's actually, okay. I, I've killed one with a bow. I have. I have not been successful, or one with a rifle, I have not been successful with a bow myself. Um, we've actually, in our hunting group, you know, we're very diverse in our hunting. We do a lot of long-range rifle hunting as well. Um, deeply passionate about long-range rifle shooting. So um, we've actually, in our hunting group, man, I don't know how many whitetail we've killed, 20, 30? A lot. Yeah. yeah. My, um, you have whitetail? You don't I, have whitetail in Arizona, right? Well, coos deer are a whitetail. Well, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. We just call them white tail here. Gotcha. So, um, yeah. 
So yeah, that I think that should be most of them, you know. And then bison, and we have Rocky Mountain and Desert Bighorn. Those are both uh, basically once in a lifetime tags. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, I saw my first coos deer in person uh, was it two weekends ago. I went to a buddy's house and he had one mounted up that he got with a bow. And I was looking at him like it. It. it I think he said it measured out to hundred and was it one hundred thirty inches or one hundred and twenty like inches. Holy right. God. And I was like, and I was looking at it. I'm like that. I mean, it seems small compared to, you know, I'm used to mule deer and elk at this point, but even growing up in North Carolina where we had small whitetails, it still looked small, you know, mm-hmm. and, and, and we were just talking about, it. I'm like, man, it's, it's such a cool animal. Cause it had some mass to it and everything. But, uh, yeah, it was, um, it was kind of eye opening to how small they are. I can't imagine having to stalk up on one of those. Cause you could, I think it hide behind just a little small sagebrush. And you wouldn't even know it was there until he popped up and ran off, you know? Oh, yeah. No, they, they are the true desert ghost. You mm-hmm. know, you hope you hear people call the mule deer a desert ghost. No, coos deer are desert ghosts. I mean, they are very small. You know, a, a doe maybe weighs 65, 70 pounds on the Golly. You know, a, a good buck is 120 pounds on the hoof. Um, and they're just... Their coloring blends in way better than you would ever think they would. But there's ways to hunt them. I mean, they're very huntable over water. Uh, they're still a whitetail, so they're patternable. Mm-hmm. Unlike a mule deer that are only patternable in early season before they shed their velvet, um, whitetail, they run the same pattern year-round. Every two or three days, they're going to hit the same water tank. They're going to do the same things. And um, that's how you can successfully harvest them is to be patient over water, but it's still a lot of fun. And how most people still like to do it out West, we glass them up, you know, bet them in, bet them down and go try to stock in on them and get close and wait for them to get up. Or if you get a good opportunity, a good opportunity bedded, but generally, you know, crawl in there and then lay in the desert sun until they decide to stand <laughs> up six hours later and get a shot. But, um, they're very hard. They're very flighty. They're super sensitive. Um, a lot of Arizona animals, once they're bedded, they don't care too much about sound. Like, you can make a little noise crawling in on them. They might pay attention. Now, if you kick a rock over or something, they're going to go, you know. But a little bit of sound, you know. I've seen mule deer just not give a darn with rocks thrown in bushes next to them. They're like, I'm here. I'm not <laughs> So, you know, an elk, much the same. I mean, it's one of the mistakes people make with elk so much as they're trying to be too dang quiet yeah and i think that's one of the biggest things with elk if it, they see movement and no sound associated to it then they're alerted but if you're noisy and they see movement they just think you're an elk so yeah, yeah. no for sure i can I, i've learned that in the couple of years that i've been out there chasing elk that uh it's not it's more smell and sight as long as you have two of the things in your you know in your favor whether it be sound smell and sight you've got two of them in your favor they they're okay with some sound you know yeah um but no that that that's awesome so i guess real quick what uh what journey hunts have you gone through uh you said water buffalo which that i talked with um was it sarah gamash about uh about her water buffalo hunt and she was telling me about how like that experience seemed crazy uh where she had like a it was like a 13 year old that was carrying the rifle that was supposed to be their backup because they didn't have enough 
people to go oh. in with him. And, and the first time that she got bluff charged at like 80 yards, the kid dropped the gun and ran like, <laughs> <laughs> so like, <laughs> and yeah, uh, I can only imagine, you know, but, uh, tell me about your water Buffalo hunt, man. That sounds like a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun, but mine's nowhere near exciting. It was on a, a high fence ranch here in Arizona. Um, just, you know, as every more people have moved here and drawing tags has become increasingly hard. And, um, I don't buy beef. I will mm-hmm. not buy beef. Um, the only time you'll see me buy beef is to go to a big barbecue where I don't want to give you any of my meat. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, we were getting low on meat, and I had actually gone to a, a ranch here. It, you know, some of these high fence ranches, it's not hunting, mm-hmm. but it's fun. And, you know, these guys are making a living off it, and you get a good experience and a good time. And, uh, yeah, he had this white Asiatic water buffalo. Um, female and she is extremely aggressive i went there to shoot a a bison a buffalo he has a herd of buffalo there um for the meat and he offered this buffalo to me at a screaming price because it had flipped over one of his six by six ranger crews the weekend before and completely destroyed when we pulled up this thing was just a mangled mess and i I said what happened to that (laughs) and like, I'll have to show you. So, yeah, he gave me an opportunity on it and um, still had to put a stock on him, which was hilarious because if we were in the Rangers, you could drive up next to her and hit her. It, but she <laughs> wanted to charge you. I mean, she bluff charged half a dozen times and we'd run away in the Ranger. <laughs> but mm. get on foot and she was running with the buffalo, with the bison. So get on foot and they weren't having it. And it's still, then the hunt is on and we actually had to put in some time on it. So, but. Yeah, beyond that, I mean, I, I think the only other cool spot part, I mean, I shot her at 80 yards, and she literally stood there for six, six seconds and flipped over. Absolutely perfect shot. Both lungs cut three arteries off the top of the giant heart. And wow. stood there and flipped over. So, and the meat's very good. The, you know, it's tough. The steaks are incredibly tough. I turned it all into burger, but the burger tastes like, tastes like beef. So. All right, pardon the brief interruption here, but I want to bring to you and give a shout out to all the amazing companies that I get to work with on a regular basis. I aim for quality, and I want you guys to understand that. I want you to know that the companies that I recommend, it's not due to being paid by these companies or being asked to advertise certain things. I work with companies that I believe in, I use their gear or their nutritional supplementation, and I wanna share that with you. So here we go. Of course, First Form and First Form Outdoors. Guys, come join us over at First Form Outdoors Facebook group. If you don't have Facebook, shoot me an email. I'd love to get you in on the weekly calls. First Form just makes the best supplements on the market. When you're up on the mountain, you definitely want a post-workout shake. When you get off of the mountain while you're making your your meals, you wanna make sure you have your micronutrients on point when you are hunting. So definitely want you guys to check that out. Check out the link down below. You get free shipping for life when you use the link on any orders. Over 75 bucks. Also, Alpen Fuel and Heather's Choice. Those are my top two meals in the backcountry whenever I'm out hunting. I love those meals. Clean ingredients. Great macros. Make sure you hit your recovery there as well. Black Ovis. Best conglomeration of... All of the things that have to do with outdoors and hunting from clothing. I love their lightweight setups with Merino and their pants. 
They've got backpacks, glassing, and more boots, crispy boots that I rock. Go check them out, guys. Code REDBEARD10 will save you money and free shipping on anything over $50. All in digiscoping, best digiscoping on the market. The Bino adapter is coming out very soon. Go check it out. Code REDBEARD to save some money. Initial Ascent, best pack backpacks on the market, guys, by far. Go check them out and use code REDBEARD as well. A3 Archery Bowstrings, favorite strings, no stretch, no need to wax them. They're waxless, just awesome, and they hold tension. No loss in poundage. Go check them out, A3 Archery Bowstrings. Cryptek, my go-to camo, but also day-to-day -day wear. They've got some amazing pieces of gear and clothing. Go check out Cryptek, Castrol Glassing Systems, Dark Energy, if you guys need that battery, the Poseidon Pro, or even the Poseidon Nano. Go check them out, guys. Use code REDBEARD, save some money. Go Ruck, those McCalls, or those Macalls, are the best shoe for EDC. For me personally, I rock them every single day. Trail running, they are great for rucking. They have some great tread, wider toe box, excellent shoe. Go check out Go Ruck, code REDBEARD10. Sheep Feet Custom Orthotics, My Medic, Canvas Cutter. Guys, that thing is outstanding. Get a cot from Teton Sports, get Canvas Cutter, and you're good to go during hunting season if you're hunting back from the truck. Affect Beard Oil, Muley Freak Bino Harness, the Game Changer, Bow Hunters United, Joy Bees, and of course, the Bow Hitch. Guys, Thank you so much for listening in on this. I just want to give a shout out to all the sponsors of the show. If you can't support monetarily, again, go leave a review. I appreciate it. Have an awesome day. And let's get back into the conversation here. Nothing else too major. 2015 uh, was my first backcountry elk hunt. Went to Southern Colorado. That's what got into my blood and backcountry and fitness. Because I was, as a lot of people know, who've known me a long time, I was a pack-a-day smoker. Thought I was in good shape. Um, it's funny now because getting ready to go to Colorado next month. And I'm, then I weighed 192 pounds going into it. And I'm at 192 right now, 35 pounds more muscle. How mm -hmm. I ever thought I was in shape then, I don't know. And I still would like to be a little leaner now. So, But that was, that was an experience for me alone because I could glass elk all day long. And they were all above 12,000 12, feet. And... I knew I could get there, but I knew there was no way I was getting an elk back. Like if I'm going up there, I'm taking a fork and a knife and that's it. <laughs> oh, it, it, it was pretty demoralizing. We stayed down around nine to 10,000 feet in the elk. There, we got into some elk. Um, my dad got an opportunity um, and missed. He range caught the trees instead of the animal and ended up shooting over its back. Nice six by six. But uh, yeah, unfortunately that did, but that got in my blood and it also just, chapped me horribly bad that i realized i really needed to change my lifestyle um, yep. the, the partying and that growing up in that way had to go away so uh yeah that that was a fun adventure this next month to colorado with zach bailiff and evan williams from hoyt um really looking forward to that you know they're two monsters and I'm in good shape, but they're in even better shape. So looking forward <laughs> to it. I haven't been back there since, but I'm ready this time. And then uh, yeah. 2016, probably one of my biggest adventure hunts. My dad and I went to British Columbia for moose um, for Yukon. Ten days, 
was only supposed to be a 10-day hunt. We actually shot his moose. We we finally got one last day. Last morning, we were supposed to be flying out, and the moose came through camp the night before. Um, first one to really have up close. We'd been into moose, but nothing. It, it was super foggy a lot of the time. We'd get into them, and you just couldn't see them real well and couldn't tell if they were legal. And then a, a monster came literally through our camp in the dark, and we had headlamps on him looking at him. And, uh, yeah, that worked out. That was a blessing. So my dad got to shoot a moose the next morning, and fortunately he stayed on the lake, and we were or on the shoreline and not half a mile from our camp, so we were able to get him out in time to still catch our plane right home. So, <laughs> Oh, that's awesome. That's but awesome. That, that was quite the adventure, and dealing with bears and wolves and everything, that, that's an experience. But, yeah. No, yeah. for sure. That does sound like a lot of fun. Um, even the, you know, a lot of people will say, high fence hunting. It just depends on what, you know, going back to the water Buffalo, what are you going out for? Like you're, you're not sitting here saying, Oh, I went on this stock of this amazing white Asiatic Buffalo. Like if you're portraying it that way, I think that's the problem with the high fence hunting. But when you're going in for either, whether it be reps in the red zone, just getting used to shooting an animal, killing an animal, testing gear, even, I know it sounds terrible saying testing gear on animal, but if you're, if you're eating the meat or you're in this case, uh, taking an animal, a coal animal per se, um, out of a herd that's causing literal damage, um, and, and other issues going on there, you know, it's just, again, how you portray it. So like, I know me personally, I'm like all for it. If you're willing to go and pay for that and go and do a high fence hunt, you can get so many things out of that, but don't sit there and pose and be like, Oh, I went to Africa and did the, you know, like <laughs> I didn't even share the photos on social media, man. I yeah. mean, you yeah. know, it was a fun experience, but I was there for me. And mm-hmm. I brought my my daughter with me. Um, so she was able to take a cool sheep, and um, it's just a, a couple days of fun and enjoy the outdoors. Um, everything we shot, we brought home. We, you know, um, we hunt for me and to be in the outdoors. You know, and when you can't get tags, and it's an opportunity. I I really appreciate those hunts for kids because it gives them yeah. a good experience. You know, it's a target rich environment. You know. I think that's so important when it's getting the kids involved is a, you know, people saying forcing them into hunting, you know what? No, just take them camping. Let them see animals, ask them if they want to go on a hike with you. You know, that's, I started taking my daughter, my oldest daughter. Um, I have a 15 year old and a five year old. Um, I started taking my oldest daughter around with me when she was four years old and just go camping and Hey, you know, dad's going for a hike. You want to go with, or, you know, and instantly she had the love for it instantly. And we were blessed in that she was kind of the youngest group. And, um, our friends group of my hunting partner had three girls that he, he's the one who taught me how to just apply this to them. Cause all three of his girls loved to hunt and it just became a family thing. And I mean, we've had junior elk hunts, which are just my absolute favorite hunt out of anything. Junior elk hunts with nine families and six kids hunting and and 30 people there, you know, and they're always at a good time where success odds. Well, we're a hundred percent on junior elk hunts. Um, and that is just such making so many core memories, you know, and we put a lot of work into we're, we're lucky here in Arizona. We can, there's a lot of dirt roads everywhere. So we're always able to get to the animal, get him back, get it back whole, or even with a cat. I mean, they're all cow hunts. So even if you can get a quad to it, drag it back or whatever you know and 
hang hang it up in camp and let the kids skin it and learn the anatomy and and man that's still when you talk about those memories with these girls and now they're all mm-hmm. you know i mean morgan's 15 and the oldest taylor now she's 23 and making a family of her own but those are memories they'll never forget and we share pictures and talk about it all the time and you know it's awesome it's absolutely awesome and then like last year my daughter had her first hard hunt um the mm. rifle junior deer hunt she'd already taken a, a, a little fork and horn as her first that was her very first animal and she wanted a good buck and uh it took a week. She'd never even been on anybody's hunt that she'd been out in the field for more than 48 hours. Nothing she'd ever done took more than 48 hours that she came along with her. So for seven days to grind it out with her morning and night with school in between, cause she had college classes in between and everything. She's very advanced. She's a 15 year old senior. Um, that's also going to college. So, um, that grind that out with her and on day seven get to take a mature six-year-old 150 inch deer was really awesome yeah so. no that that's that's outstanding and i i agree with you on that with kids you know when people talk about and it, you know i've had it's it's rare but when i do have people that are upset about adult onset hunters whatever you want to call them i'm an adult onset hunter i was taken hunting when i was a kid i didn't like how it was set up um in north carolina where you have basically shooting lanes, you got salt on one end, corn on another end, and some kind of other feed down the other shooting lane. You're sitting there with a rifle at like 80 yards. If I want to go target shoot, I'm going to go target shoot. Like that for me was just, I didn't like it. So I stuck to fishing. No one in my family was into archery, unfortunately. And so I was avid outdoorsman, Boy Scouts, Eagle Scout, all that good stuff. Loved it, but didn't like, and I, and I wanted to be a vet at the time. So I loved animals and I was okay with hunting but not that kind of hunting for me. Right. And so, you know, coming out here, coming out West, um, it's a whole different experience. And, you know, that's again, why I got into it. If it wasn't for one of my best friends, um, inviting me on a hunt, I'd probably be back in North Carolina to be honest with you, working on physical therapy degree. Um, but I fell in love with public land out here and hearing people say, and again, it's few and far between, but the people that are like you, adult onset hunters are annoying, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, well, how else are we going to keep the hunting population and the the right to hunt and the privileges that we have as hunters around if we don't continue spreading the word and getting people into it, even as adults? And so as an, as a, you know, an adult onset hunter myself, I like to take my kids out and again, not force them. I don't think that that's the way because then you just get those disgruntled kids. It's not a good experience. And, um, I think it was, so it was Bert Soren that I was talking to about it, how he even realized that his kids didn't like the pressure. Like, I don't know any kids that enjoy getting up at four in the morning to go hike three miles to go possibly see an animal, let alone get one. And like, you know, no kid really enjoys that. But he realized when he was taking his young kids out duck hunting, they had hot chocolate. They didn't have to get up as early. They were snuggled in cozy with their clothing. Like it was just a better experience. And so finding those ways, kind of like what you're saying to, to dip their toes in with camping, shorter hikes, not as steep places, you know, they're going to be able to see animals, um, you know, things like that. Bring them a pair of binoculars, let them learn how to see it that way in a fun environment, calling turkeys, you know, stuff like that is, is a lot of fun for kids. 
And, yeah. uh, and I, I love that you bring that up because that's, that's definitely, you know, those core memories that the kids will remember, whether they choose to get into hunting or not, you've provided that opportunity for them to, to learn about it and not to have a bad experience, you know? Exactly. Yep. Um, so with, with that being said, let's dive a little bit into archery here, more technical side of things. So I've got my bow set up here and let's talk a little bit about this. I haven't done the review yet, but it'll be coming out soon. But this rest right here, Mm -hmm. that's my baby. (laughs) Oh yeah. So this is the first cable driven rest. And we were talking about it off air here, um, that I've run on a setup in the last couple of years, just because I was a little weary of this right here. Now, not this piece, but before having to tie it through the cable and not being able to fix that in the field. If heaven forbid something happens, we've got wonderful scrub oak and all this other crap. It gets caught and rips the cord or takes it out of time. I didn't want to have to deal with that driving back down the mountain, fixing it with a press. So walk us through a little bit as far as this rest is concerned. Um, what, what sparked it? What's what makes it different than other cable driven rests, and then that little piece that goes in the cable. Well, so that is the prophecy QD, obviously QD standing for quick detach. Um, you know, it's originally derived off our freak show QD, which is a blade rest that is um very popular in the target world. And uh, you know, that kind of started kind of a funny story because the first real quick detach rest on the compound side was from Spothog. Ironically, their design violates one of our patents because the very first real quick detach rest um, in the target world, it was our free flight elite that was designed by Dick Tome from Cavalier Archery back in the late eighties. And I actually had the freak show QD with that patented design Draw in the middle of finishing the design the day that Spot Hog launched their version, and it's identical dimensionally. You can take a the body off a, a uh, um, Spot Hog rest and off the the swap and put it on the Free Flight Elite body. Now, Cade and I are friends, um, so we had a conversation about it, came to an agreement, let them continue on, and I'm honestly thankful for it because. It redirected us to, okay, we need to do better. Um, so I went back to the drawing board on the, the mount and the mounting system because we wanted to be able to include a better torque tuning system. The Freak Show at that point had been out, gosh, six, seven years. Um, its biggest issue was when you were torque tuning the rest, there was no way that kept it locked into its horizontal parallel position. So you can move the rest without blowing your tune out of proportion. Um, and that's where that design came from now where we have a mounting block that mounts to the bow itself. Um, that block has male teeth on it. So overall we have, uh, 15 points of contact on the rest now between there's six teeth on the mounting block that engages. And then you have three engaging flats as well. So now you can take that rest off, um, for travel, for safety, you know, for, most of the guys on the hunting world now, we have one bow. You know, most people today, a high-end bow, that omen in your hands, a $1,500, $1,400 bow. You know, um, you know, buying multiples of those is just not something that's real feasible for most people. Mm-hmm. But to have one, then now, okay, in the off-season, I want to go shoot 3Ds with my buddy. 
and maybe I want to shoot a different arrow setup. You know, um, now instead of buying a $1,500 bow, I just need to buy another rest, maybe another sight. Because if you bought a second bow, you'd have to buy a rest on the sight anyways. So we're going to cut that out of the equation so that the bow I'm going to hunt with is still the bow that I shoot every day. It's a bow that fits right. My peep height's right. Everything fits me perfect. Now all I got to do is swap a rest and swap a sight out, and they both stay in tune. You know, we use dovetail sights. We use rests that go back in. So I, in a matter of two minutes, I can go from my 3D setup to my hunting setup. Or, you know, now on the other side, travel with travel, especially if you got to put your bow and you're going to fly somewhere. Now I can take the rest off and it stays safe. Um, you can ask so many people in the target world that travel around the world. TSA is not nice. And one of the most common things is to open your bow case up and your rest is broken. It's bent in half. Whatever happened, God knows how many of our bows get taken out of the case and somebody's messing with it. You know, on that note, if you do travel that way, zip ties, zip tie your bow down. Um, I think Eric Griggs even has a product now that has a little lock on it that goes on your cams. I myself need to get one. Eric Griggs with gas, uh, gas bow strings. That's a must because you wouldn't believe how many bows I've seen to open derailed um, from somebody in TSA thinking they're cool. So, but that's one of the great things about the quick detach refs. And of course, once we had the Freak Show QD, those of us who love followaways, everybody wanted a followaway version. So that gets into, you know, so the prophecy has been out for a long time. And most people are pretty familiar with it. It's built on our Pro Series frame. It's the strongest, most accurate frame available. Um, the prophecy is an incredible, I like to think and firmly believe it's probably the most accurate followaway rest, whether limb driven or cable driven. It's extremely accurate. Um, we we do life cycle testing on all the rests on the market, and it sees over 400,000 shots of life cycle. It's more than most people ever shoot in their life, um, whereas most competitors, our nearest competitor averages 50,000. Um, so the rest is bulletproof. It's extremely accurate. It, you know, But then getting into the QD wedge, that was the hard part. And... Um, the Pro Drop, which is our limb-driven version, will also be coming out soon. We're refining some things with it. But both of the quick detach cable attachments. So on the Prophecy, that is the QD wedge um, there that you put it, that you do have to put into your bus cable that does require a bow press. But once it's in there, it's there forever. And now with one screw, you pull that out. There's an insert that goes in there that the cable runs through. And now you can take the rest off. and it also makes it very easily, very easy to field repair it if necessary. Um, so that brings a lot of value in there. Just even if you're not running a quick detach rest, just having mm -hmm. that insert in there so that if your cable gets cut, it's super easy to replace the cable really fast. Nope, that definitely makes sense. And yeah, it's one of the things that, that I was intrigued by um, on this rest because once you've got that little wedge in there, um, like you were saying, it's just one little screw, and then you're able to adjust that cord. If the cord gets cut, if their timing's out, you need to replace the cord, whatever, it makes it really easy to do. Um, so I, I really like that. And again, this is my first cable driven. So, um, you know, what's the, I guess, my big question is why do you need to flip it up? Like, why is that something that is important to you know, for cable driven or for you even? Well, I mean, as far as the lockup style rest, there's, you know, half a dozen of them maybe now. 
and the biggest advantage to them that everybody wants is to be able to lock the arrow up in place. So the right, mm. you know, like a, if you shoot a, a limb driven raster or standard style fall away, um, especially in the hunting environment, a, it's easy for the arrow to fall off out of the way. Or when you come to full draw and you, you yard it back cause your heart's pounding or whatever happens there an arrow can bounce off the launcher. Um, you know, in the limb driven world, we have cages around them, but it, that's, it doesn't keep the arrow on the launcher. Mm-hmm. So, you know, in the, the lockup style rest, the rest is already up. We can draw smoother and slower. There's no bouncing going on. There's spotting and stalking. Um, you know, that arrow is contained. You know, when you're into that last 30, 40 yards or whatever you're doing now, you can pull your arrow out of the quiver, get it locked in there, and it's in a safe spot. So that's the whole point and premise behind a lockup rest. Um the thing with the prophecy, it, it does require you to lock it up. It does not come up on its own. I, I don't necessarily call it a negative, but for those who it can, it can get you. I mean, that, that is a simple fact about it. Just, it, but it becomes part of your shot cycle. You yep. knock the arrow, stick it in there. You cock the rest. And most people, even if they're shooting at competitors, that's what they do. Um, I will say for the people that it throws off are the people who are used to shooting a limb driven rest. I'm coming mm-hmm. from the target world and shooting a blade my whole life. I'm used to looking at the rest when I draw. I still do it. I'm not looking at the animal. I'm looking at the rest, even with the prophecy with a locked into position every time. It's just what I'm used to doing. Um, but yeah, as far as why within the prophecy, it must be done. It's a sear system. Um, so the cable is actually attached to basically a hammer that breaks the sear. Um, there's, I've made designs where I can combine those two, but it requires a clutch, um, which then brings the life cycle of the rest way down. And that clutch can get wet, can get cold. The component is very expensive itself. It drives the cost of the rest way up. And those are just not things that I feel are necessary. The the QD rest is $300. It's already at the upper end of the market. And we're not gouging people by any means on that. that's it's very expensive to produce between the internal components, the micro adjust, and then um, the mount is the mounting system is extremely precise and very expensive to produce. We're probably one of the only people in the hunting in, or the target industry that can it requires a high speed mill with forty thousand RPM capabilities to do it at a reasonable speed of time. And the only reason we have that is because we use those machines for. Um, the injection molding world for machining hardened mm-hmm. cavities. Um, it's just not a piece of a, you know, it's a three quarter, three quarter of a million dollar mill. Um, and they're just not very common. So, yeah, that's pretty, I mean, I'd say that's a pricey piece of equipment there. That's yeah. <laughs> um, so my question then, cause everything seems to be trending towards, you know, getting it in line. And I know again, coming from the target world, Torque tuning is a big thing. It's something I'm honestly just learning about because of your videos and things that you've put out about it. Um, is there anything, do you ever consider, you know, putting something on the back of the riser, like a dovetail, that QD mount kind of deal? Is that something that you even would consider? I've considered it. Uh, AQAD has it patented, you know, um, and they're not sharing the license, which I wouldn't either. You know, um, Hamsky tried to do a workaround there, and uh, that's not, I believe they're having some legal battles there involving <laughs> that. Um, for me, yes, you want to try to get, you know, Hoyt's using a pic- Picatinny rail on the back of it. But again, 
as I'm teaching people, tune is everything. Forgiveness is everything. Not being able to move the rest and for torque tuning, I'm not a fan of at all. Um, even with you don't need the QD mount with a standard style mount, having some adjustment in the rest to me is incredibly important. Um, when I teach people tuning, um, torque tuning is one of the very first things we do. And I, it doesn't take very long for me to explain to you exactly why it's so important. Um, you know, because so many of these bows, you see guys, they run their sight all the way forward. Their rest is far back. They're trying to run a really short rest. That's not forgiving. And in the world of broadheads, unless you're shooting a very small mechanical, um, that's only going to lead to a problem. Again, then we get into that one moment when it matters. And you've yeah. been... <laughs> you know, especially out west or even in a tree stand, you're twisted up around a tree, you're not in perfect form. That bow needs to be as forgiving as possible. Um, and if you're worried about saving a half inch or three quarters of an inch of clearance on the side of the bow, especially the whitetail guys, that they don't even run a quiver on the bow. What's it matter? And that's yeah. 70% of our hunters, you know? Right. Yeah. Um, yeah, the, the value is not there to me at all. I mean, I understand the thought process of trying to meld the risers together and bring things even narrower, but you're taking away tunability. You know, it's the, I don't see the value in it whatsoever. Personally, most of the sites, no. even if, if they're in line, then the site itself still has to then jog out because there's no room for micro adjust. The housings are too big. There's, it doesn't even work. Um, I appreciate the thought process and, in certain environments, I don't even know what the environment would be that it matters. <laughs> Honestly, you know, yeah. I mean, Hoyt brought out a quiver these days, a new quiver that they just launched. The one I'm using is called the Stretch on a PSC. Okay. It's okay to, to crossbreed people. Um, <laughs> that quiver is probably the best. It's a one piece te technically as a two piece mm -hmm. quick detach quiver I've ever seen. And, um, it's a six arrow. I use it as a five because the one arrow would hit my rest, but it sits so flush. It's almost flush behind my rest. Um, yeah. Shout out to Hoyt on that. I, I think it's going to, they need to be uh, marketing that to work on every bow because I absolutely love it. Um, you know, it's on my omen and it's works phenomenal. And beyond that, you know, I, I don't see the value. There, there is no value in bringing all these into one level when you take tunability out of it. No, nope, that makes sense. And I, I love the different perspectives because, you know, everyone's on that bandwagon. And I've, I've jumped on it too um, to where you want to get everything in line. But again, that's me. I'm new to this. So uh, it made sense to my mind. But hearing it from your perspective makes a lot of sense as well. That You want to be as forgiving as possible and being able to tune, torque tune it, you know, when you've got people that are in tree saddles, tree stands, you're standing on the side of a mountain, you're on one knee. Yeah. I mean, there's never a time where you're really just straight yeah. up shooting like you do on the line. Yeah. I mean, and being an Arizona hunter, hunting mule deer and whitetail coos deer where everything's spot and stock, stalking into an animal and you're laying on your back in the grass for six hours, waiting for the thing to stand and your only move is to draw the bow while you're laying down, which is another advantage to a lock-up rest. Because um, the only other rest you can do that with is a, a whisker biscuit. So being able to draw the bow while you're laying down and sit up and shoot. Because I've done it. I've successfully done it. And so quite often that's your only option. Mm -hmm. If you need to have stealth um, and you're in their red zone inside 
out west inside 50 yards, you know. Um, yeah, I need that thing to be forgiving, man, because you're darn sure twerking that thing, particularly if you're mm-hmm. laying down on the side of the hill. Then you got to sit up and it walks out away from your shooting line and you're twisted up backwards up the hill. That's how my <laughs> shot was. My back was screaming at me. I was rotating as far as I could, you know. Um, I guarantee I was twerking the bow, you know. Yeah. You get into using back bars. Again, people don't put back bars on their bow. And Okay, why are you even worried about making the bow more narrow when you actually need a back bar on the bow so you don't have to apply torque to it? And that thing's sticking out to the side six inches. Who cares mm-hmm. how narrow the bow is, you know? Yeah. Yep, exactly. No, I, I love it. I love it. That's, that's, a good, that's a good point of view and perspective on it. So, and then speaking of back bars, I want to talk to you a little bit about your stabilizers here. So I've got... Mm-hmm. This is the eight inch is what I've got on the back of the bow here. Um, talk to us about, I guess, what is it about these stabilizers that makes it stand out compared to other stabilizers on the market? So everything that in a stabilizer that AE produces that we design, they're not just a carbon tube. There's a lot of bars out there that are just a basic low modulus carbon tube, particularly on the hunting side, because they don't have to be ultra stiff. But what you can mm-hmm. do is still provide a stabilizer that each layer of carbon has a purpose, whether it's torsional rigidity, response time, frequency response, nodal response, every layer of carbon can do something for it. Um, and that's why, particularly in the mountain series bars, because, um, you know, I'll be straight up honest, I should be charging twice as much for that bar for what we put into it. But I want people to be able to afford it and I want people to use it. Um, the end caps are not just basic cheap, low grade aluminum. That is, those end caps are 70, 75, T6, high grade aluminum. Um, they're machined to be ultra lightweight. That's why, you know, if you show the one end of it, it there's holes in the end of it. Um, turn that a little bit. Yeah, if the camera could pick that up, there's holes in the end of that thing off of it. to lighten it up because we're trying to make that stabilizer as light as possible for your hunting room, you know. And you can see there's all those holes. All those holes are there just to lighten the state end caps as much as possible. And that's why we use 7075, which 7075 is three to four times more expensive than than uh, 6061T6, what you would commonly hear is billet-grade aluminum, which is just mm-hmm. our standard high-strength material. Um, that's what the rings are in it for. Everything about the end caps is designed to produce a high-strength, low-weight end cap affordably. You know, to go any better, we'd have to go to titanium which is now the price goes to another level. (laughs) And then, so now you're on a half inch diameter bar. So it produce, it performs better in the wind combined with how we lay up our carbon um, provides a really good feel. Um, Now the big secret for us in that stabilizer is the internal vibration damping. We have a material that now is used in all of our stabilizers, including the new two two new stabilizers that we'll be bringing out. Um, What is the mountain series? Big brother will be called the skyline. and the Denali. And uh, yeah, th- that's one of the big secrets to its feel. Combine that then with the, the Limb Saver product that's on the OD of the bar that takes out more vibration. And then our little, um, our vibration ball that's on the end of it. And again, it attacks a different frequency. So these are small features that perform good in the wind and give a phenomenal response to the bars. The bars feel really good. They're, they're very dead. They, um, you know, you dive, dive into the, taking the target side of stabilization into the hunting world and you talk about nodal response and 
the stabilizer needs to load up and hold the entire shooting platform still within the shot mm. cycle, which is about one seventieth of a second. Um, those bars are designed to do that. So, and again, I for the performance that that bar brings, I could sell it for two hundred fifty dollars, and we want to bring it to the market and still bring it at a price that the general bow hunter can afford. So they're going to get a, a ton of value and a ton of performance out of a bar that's competitively very. Um, there is no bar that has that performance level and that amount of engineering into it in that price range. Gotcha. No, that that makes sense. And I, I mean, I've really enjoyed it um, for the time that I've had it on my bow, and it, it seems to be a super stiff bar. Um, obviously, that half inch diameter, you know, helps cut cut wind a little bit, but also can get really stiff. Um, I mean, there's so much that goes into this. It just Again, blows my mind. I don't have an engineering mind, but it looks good <laughs> and it operates, it functions. <laughs> they look really good. They look really yeah. good. Yeah. That, that's definitely something that people don't talk about a lot. You want your bow to look good too. Like it yeah. functions. If you can find something that functions good and looks good, I mean, that's, that's a winner, right? Yeah. Um, so when you say the big brother, is it going to be a thicker diameter bar? No. Stiffer. Okay. Stiffer. Gotcha. Yes. With stiffness and small diameter comes cost. So mm-hmm. um, it will be a crossover bar that will be more aimed at the target market, the front bars. It will have, um, you know, really this will be the first time I'm saying it publicly, but, you know, as far as what that bow is going to have. People have seen it for a lot of years. Paige Pierce has been tearing up the target world with it for three years. Um, so it's not on... You know, with diameter comes more stiffness and more strength. It is not that stiff that, say, mm-hmm. our nitrous bar or a bee stinger. Um, I don't even know what versions they have, what their names are now, but they're high-end target bars. It's not in that stiffness. I can get there, but the bars a goes from, say, that bar and a a 30-inch bar right now, that piece of carbon costs about $200 finished, $200 to $225. Wow. If I wanted to make it competitively stiffness, that's an $800 stable. So, yeah, now we get into engineered-grade carbon, but it's also incredibly brittle, um, and we don't want to get to that point. So it's a really phenomenal bar. The way it responds is quite remarkable, frankly. Um, But it's, yeah, it's not going to be cheap. But that's just comes into um, we've engineered the end caps a little different to be a little stiffer and stronger. Um, and then again, just the same as the Mountain Series bars are from the 10 inch version up to the 30 inch version. It's all the same carbon, too. So the really short ones are going to be very stiff, but they still feel phenomenal. They're gonna, they have the same technology that's into the Mountain Series bars, um, as will the, the new Denali, which is a, a bigger 700,000 OD bar. A uh, few people have seen that. Jesse Broadwater and, and uh, Gaius Carter and myself have been shooting them on the target side. But um, again, just trying to bring a high performance product to the market at a fair price. Right. No, that makes sense. I definitely appreciate that as well, that you're you're keeping the consumer in mind, but at the same time, like you have to recognize your costs on, on these yeah. things. So, Well, we still got to make well, money to stay in business and, and pay yeah. all these people. You know, you see, you got that first form sign in the back and Andy Frisella, I've listened to every one of his podcasts and look forward to the day I get to meet him. But, um, you know, MFCEO prod, podcast, I greatly appreciate the culture that first form has created, um, particularly within their facility, you know, talking about, yeah, he can, um, 
he could automate so much of what they do there, but they value humans and they value people. And we have, I, it's been interesting for me because I've always, as a company, we've always valued people. We have some automation, but not a lot. I'd rather pay humans. I want, you know, I take a lot of pride in our 65 to, depending how busy we are, we, we go all the way up to 80 employees. And uh, I take a lot of pride in, in providing them a job that they can then provide for their families. Um, you know, what we will unfortunately continue to have to automate to grow because employee, <laughs> thanks to COVID and everything that they've done to the working class in the last four years, um, quality employees are hard to get now. Yep. Um, you know, we've sucked up as many as we can here and I don't let them go. Even if we're a little slow, I'll, <laughs> I will personally lose money so that you can continue to feed your families. You may be washing walls and cleaning machines, but I'll make sure you're getting paid. So, yeah, no, that's awesome. And I definitely, definitely appreciate that. And yeah, the whole first forum community is just outstanding. That's why I've latched onto that and bringing that to the outdoors world. Uh, you know, of course people have heard me talk about it all the time, but that may you, you saw our booth attack. Like it's just, it's outstanding. I love bringing it to the, to the, the outdoors society, you know, you, you need those quality individuals. And then of course, like you said, um, trying not to automate as, as little as possible. And so that that's awesome that you hold that same, same value. So, uh, wrapping up here, what would be something that you'd want to leave with the audience, whether it deal with hunting archery and we didn't even get into fitness, man. Uh, you guys that don't know, Nick, he is a beast. Um, even just from was it February that we saw you at ATA even just from February to July my goodness man you've like you got jacked (laughs) like I need your formula but uh he's ready for the mountains guys I can tell you that um maybe we'll do another follow-up podcast where we talk about fitness and and your journey after you've crushed the Colorado mountains but uh what do you want to leave with the people just get outside man support each other I love the tacky events. I've gone to, you know, I've traveled to ASAs, the IBOs, NFAs. I freaking love the people and the culture at the tacky events. And it's, yeah, everybody's hardcore bow hunters are getting into bow hunting, but they're outdoorsmen and they're fitness enthusiasts. So you're not going to see many people at a tacky event who aren't in shape because frankly, you know, I mean, we were in Brighton the last time I saw you and it was pushing 10,000 feet elevation. Oh, yeah. You're going to go even hike those trails if you're not in shape. You, your lungs will not handle it. And uh, just get outside. Take care of yourselves. Take care of our youth. You know, just spread the love for the outdoors. The hunting side of it will come with it. And even if it doesn't, just enjoy being outside and take care of yourselves and make those core memories. That's it, man. But, you know, our brand, uh, we do what we do because we care of and love the industry. And we want to bring quality at, at a value, at an affordable price to the to the world. But that's all I have to share is just get outside and enjoy the outdoors. And yeah, man, you want to, if, if you're questioning whether to come to a tack event and see the culture, go to one. It was awesome. Levi Morgan. I haven't, uh, I'll have to ask him what his thoughts were. We talked about it briefly. Um, but to see him, you know, come to a tack event and, and just see that there's that many people, three, 4,000 people at 10, 11 events, not going to shoot competitively. They might be shooting competitively with their buddies, but we're just getting out there to test our gear, get ready for the season, enjoy nature in its finest. I mean, some of these locations, you know, I haven't gone to Big Sky yet. I know that one's stunning, but Utah Mountains are one of my favorite places in the world. My goodness. I mean, how do you, 
just so stunning to get out there and enjoy being outside and connect with nature and connect. Like I said, that's my connection to God. I don't, I'm not a fan of the church, but I believe in God. And, um, that that's where I go to see him. Exactly. And on that note, guys, and I appreciate you, Nick, so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to hop on here on the podcast. And, uh, you guys, you always hear me say it, get outside. That's just, that's key. You got to enjoy it. Got to love it. And uh, like I always say, guys, get out, live your life and love it. Thank you, John. Thank you so much, guys, for tuning into this conversation. Nick is just a stud. He knows what he's doing when it comes to archery. He's been in it for a long time. Always has an answer. Loves listening to your opinion. Isn't just stuck in his ways, but will explain to you why he does what he does. And he's successful at what he does. So with that being said, guys, go check out Nick and AAE Archery. I will leave the links down below so you can go check them out and see what type of equipment you may need from rest to stabilizers to all the different types of things that AAE provides. Definitely go check them out. Go support them over there if you're looking to upgrade your archery equipment. Thank you guys for tuning in to this show. Hope you learned something. If you did, leave a review. Guys, it takes very little time. I could really, really use your help with that. Sharing reviews helps for other people to get their eyeballs and their ears on the podcast. So if you got some some knowledge from this, if you learned something, go share it. Appreciate that, guys. And let me know if you have any questions. I'd be more than happy to help you out with any questions you may have. Really appreciate it. And then if you're looking for gear, check out the links in every single episode. I leave the links in codes below so you can save money on the gear that I use and that I recommend. That being said, guys, thanks so much for tuning in. Have an amazing Saturday. And if you're elk hunting, good luck this season. Shoot straight and aim to get into elk every single day. Have an outstanding weekend. And of course, get out, live your life, and love it.